If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to John chapter 7. We'll be in verses 32 through the end of the chapter, verse 52 this morning. Generally, as people of the world, and specifically as Americans, there are many of us who engage in bad habits, and not just bad habits spiritually, but physically as well. I would imagine that there's more than a little bit of the practice of doctoring people and of of speaking to them of their physical health that goes something like, Stan, you've been smoking now for 25 years. If you want to continue to live much longer, you're going to have to give it up. To which I'm sure the response is quite often, and if I don't, well, you will die. And if I continue to, you will die. And if I quit, well, you'll die, but it'll be later. Many of the times I think people don't give up these bad habits because frankly, the end is the same. If they die in 10 years or they die in five years, they are still going to die. And and what good is giving up the habit of smoking or of bad eating when you can enjoy the life that you have in front of them? Such warnings are often tempered by the sort of expectation of death. The fact that death comes for us all sort of takes the teeth out of the warning. We will gladly ride motorcycles without helmets. We will gladly consume much sugar. We will gladly do all kinds of things that are probably bad for our bodies because we know that eventually we're going to die anyway. Truth is, these warnings lack teeth because death will come and claim us. But that's not true for the warnings that Christ has given us. That's not true for the warnings that Christ has already laid out for us. We talked last week about the need to be warned about only seeking Jesus as our our moral example, that he is somehow uh, the pattern that we are supposed to have for how we live our life, and that's all he has really come to do, that, that he came and lived and died so that we would have an example of how we are to love other people. That's true. He is a moral example, but he can't just be that. We were warned about putting off our dealing with sin, about turning against Jesus. Indeed, We were warned against the entirety of looking at this world as though it is the only world in which we live. These warnings, too, would ultimately lack true force if we were not promised something better. Warnings are only as good as the thing that is promised on the other side of them. Today, we get to hear about the promise of something better. So if you would, read with me in John chapter 7. We'll begin reading in verse 37 through, vif- through verse 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. 
Nicodemus, who had gone before to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of our God. Today I'd like to talk to you about three things. First being the benefits of belief. If the warnings don't have teeth, if the warnings don't have an edge, unless we have more promise to us on the other side, it is important then that we hear Jesus' words here on the last and great day of this festival that there is great benefit that will come to believing in him. This saying of Jesus is given much more emphasis because of the nature of the festival that was going on. The festival of booths had a lot going on, and as we said a long time ago, it was one of the most popular festivals of the Jews. This was done to celebrate the harvest, and as the harvest had come in, they were to give thanks to God for the good bounty that he had given to them. And part of this festival was something that they called the the water-pouring rite. And so the high priest would carry this golden vessel down to the pool of Siloam, and he would bring it back up filled with water and walk through the people. There would be blasts from trumpets, three blasts in particular, when he got to the south side of the inner court. They would blast trumpets three times. The entire time, the choir would sing Psalms 113 to 118, called the Hallel. And as they sung these, when Psalm 118 was reached, everyone would say, give thanks to the Lord three times. The water would then be transferred to a different bowl, a silver bowl, and then water and wine poured out before the Lord. The symbolism was meant to imply both Moses hitting the rock and allowing water to come out in the middle of the desert, giving life to the people of God. When the people shouted, give thanks to the Lord, the men would take both branches in one hand and fruit in the other and raise them to the Lord as they shouted as a sign of God's provision of both plant life and the fruit that they were able to gather in the harvest. All told, with the pouring out of the water, with the giving of the water, which also symbolized the pouring out of the Spirit in the last days, the symbolism of the fruit and the branches, it was clear that what was at work here was life's was, was God's provision of life to his people, that each year they were sustained by the harvest, but that harvest was brought to them because of the good and pleasant will of their God to give it to them. They acknowledged this. They acknowledged that all life was from him and their prosperity was tied directly to them. So Jesus' statement of, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, takes on clear and obvious significance. He is, as it is, the rock in the desert, providing life when death is very, very close, when death is, is all but certain for the people of the desert unless they were to get drink. God brings forth water from a rock, and Jesus is saying, if you are thirsty, you should come to me, and I will give you what you need. We should note, though, that the provision exists only for those who thirst. If you are not thirsty, if you are deluded in your thinking and thinking that you don't need this water that Jesus asks, or excuse me, that Jesus provides to you, well, you will never come to him. He says very clearly, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. If you are satiated in your life with how you live, with the the place that you are right now, there's, there's nothing here for you. Jesus offers you nothing. Anyone who is happy with this world does not need Jesus in their life. As we often sing in the hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth, is your need, is to feel your need of him. If you don't 
feel like you need him, you will never come to him. But friend, let me tell you, all of you ought to be very, very thirsty this morning. What does this idea of thirst signify? Well, quite clearly, it can't be literal. By any stretch of the imagination, Jesus is not handing out buckets of water. And even if he was, it would be hard to imagine buckets of water coming from inside of you. That's a medical problem, and you should seek attention for it. That is not what Jesus is promising you. I think that the thirsting and the hungering, when we talk about those things, and here specifically, my guess is that it means your desires are fulfilled in Christ. That as Christ has come, he says, I will, I will give you what you need, what you seek, what you long for in life. I will give it to you. Now, immediately what we do is we think of the things that we want and we think of how we want them. What Jesus is not promising you is that what you want is precisely what he will give you or how you want to receive it is precisely how he will give it to you. Sin is a very, very evil thing. Sin does is it takes what is good, it takes what is right, it takes what is holy, and it perverts it, it twists it, it changes it until it's something that is ugly and resembles somewhat what you had actually longed for in rightness and in goodness before and changes it into something that is evil and pushes you away from God. Sin is nothing less than a perversion of what is good. So while Jesus says, I will give you what you desire, what he doesn't mean is that he's going to cave into the base cravings of your sinful nature. After all, what is lust if not a longing for beauty and belonging? What is greed if not a longing for comfort and control over chaos? What is success and a longing for success, an unrightful longing for success, if not a need for exaltation in front of your peers? What is anger if nothing more than a sinful disposition to wanting justice carried out in front of you? What is desertion? What is dissension, if nothing more than trying to create unity by making disunity? Jesus won't give you those sinful things, but he can give you the good things, the things that you really do need, really do want. Sin offers nothing but a knockoff version of what you really, truly desire. You bring it home, it costs you a lot, and what you find is that it offers you nothing in the end. It does not offer what it promised, and you're left with a payment for something that doesn't work and doesn't give you what you actually need. Jesus offers you those things free of charge. It is a well of water that comes to you. Not only that, it is rivers of water flowing out of you. The picture here is not of a small trickle. It's not of a bare amount just to get you by. It is of flowing springs, of of an overwhelming flood, a, a, a river that is right on the banks of overflowing and flooding everything. This is a picture of grave abundance. There is a super sufficiency of desire quenching water for you. You'll never lack for the things that you must have. The flowing and swelling rivers that come from you will quench those things. And what's more, it is out of you. We shouldn't miss that. He's not saying that I will provide these things for you continually. He's saying something much more fundamental and something that really, really makes a difference when we look at these verses. He says it will flow up from you, from inside of you. It it means from your heart or your belly or in For those of you who are KJV leaning, it it would be your bowels. It it comes from the very center of who you are. Whatever your core is, wherever you think the most basic things come from in you, this water will come from those things. It will overflow in you. It is an important picture. 
Let's, let's think about this picture for just a second, and we'll do it by looking back at Psalm 1. I, I will read it for you. You don't have to turn there. But Psalm 1 is likely the introduction to the entire rest of the Psalms. It's not just a Psalm that's placed there because it happened to be written first, but I think Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 happen to work as really good introductions to the entire Psalter. In that, we read these words, pay attention to the placement near a water source and what that does for the person who is blessed. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. All that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But by the way of the wicked, but the way of the wicked will perish. This blessed man is planted by streams of water. The importance of that is that the roots have access to all of that water. As it seeps through the ground, they have direct access to it. The reason why its fruit blossoms, the reason why its leaf doesn't wither, the reason why this man goes forward and everything that he does and everything that he touches, that he prospers in those things, is because of his nearness to the river. The further you get away from that water source, the harder it is for you to get that source of life the harder it becomes to maintain and sustain life, to prosper, the harder it is for plants to have fruit that is ripe, that grows fruitfully on their leaves and branches, the harder it is for that man to prosper in anything that he puts his mind to. This is why deserts are so bereft of life. It's not just that rain doesn't fall there, it's that rain doesn't flow there. There is no water for you there. So what Jesus says is incredibly important because he's not just saying, I will plant you by the water, but he says, you will have the water in you. Friend, that means that you can travel through the desert free of charge. You don't have to worry about water. You don't have to worry about giving life. You don't have to worry about your prospering in the middle of nothing and in the middle of the wilderness. You don't have to worry about your leaves withering or your fruit not coming through. You can walk through the desert and always have access to the water. You can sustain and subsist even in a place where death presses very, very closely upon you. Listen, this is an incredibly important thing. This is exactly the way Paul, I think, describes himself as walking through the world. Paul, when he writes the book of 2 Corinthians, as we've already read him, talking about comfort even in afflictions and in persecution, he's writing to them to let them know how hard his life is. Not to glorify himself, but to abase himself. To, to say that the world has turned against me. Everywhere I go, he says, there is a death sentence lingering over me. As he writes the Corinthians, it's not clear at all that that death sentence has been lifted. He feels like death is imminent upon him. And even after writing that God will reveal the gospel to whom he chooses, and he will do so by showing them the great glory of Jesus Christ, he says, we have this in jars of clay. This great gospel is in jars of clay. And then he goes on to say these words. In 2 Corinthians 4, is we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, 
but not destroyed. How? How can Paul walk everywhere, beaten, tortured, Jews are angry with him, Gentiles are angry with him, the churches are not doing well, he's writing to a church that has somewhat turned his back on Paul. Everywhere he goes, he sees trouble. Everywhere he goes, people want to kill him. And he says, life is not just bad. Yes, I am pressed upon. Yes, I am perplexed. Yes, I am afflicted. Yes, I am persecuted. Yes, I am struck down, but I am not undone. If all he had was the water of the world and walking through the desert that he's walking through, his leaf would have withered, his fruit would have dried up, and he would have nothing. But as it is, Paul has waters of rivers of living water flowing through him that sustain him even in the desert of the world. He is never, therefore, without life. Jesus says that this provision of living water, this flowing of living water, is done so because Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus seems to be quoting Scripture there. And here we get to play the feud. So we can ask a hundred scholars what Scripture is actually being fulfilled here. Survey says, Isaiah 12, 3, 44, 3, 49, 10, or 58, 11. It could be Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, or Ezekiel 47, 1. It could be Joel 3, 18. It might be Amos 9, 11 to 15. It could be Zechariah 13, 1. For those of you who really like narrative fulfillment, it could be Nehemiah 8, 5 through 18. And scholars read this. There is no exact quote, and so they kind of throw up their hands and they say, well, it could be any of these. Or it could be none of these. Chances are good that all of that is true. It is probably all of those things, and it is probably none of those things specifically. What Jesus is doing here is not giving us a precise scripture, but what he is saying is this is the tone that scripture takes. This is the generality of what scripture points to. This is the finality of what scripture is moving you toward. That this is basically what scripture says. Scripture promises you that out of yourself, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. It is the testimony of Scripture. The promise of Scripture is simply that the curse of the fall will be undone and the evil that it has brought through will be ended. Sin and its effects will be overturned. And that's what we have. When Jesus has come, he has come to undo the evil that Adam has wrought. And that we have wrought through Adam. By dying in Adam, we then are sinners in and of ourselves. And sin holds power over us. So that all we do is sin. But Jesus has come to reverse that. He has come to reverse the effects of death and to reverse the effects of sin in our lives. And what he says is specifically that scripture points in this direction. Now, because we don't have time to read all of those passages, we're going to go to different passages and kind of make the case for this. Specifically, just looking at the end of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 60, we read this out of the first three verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And all the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. In verses 19 through 20, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and God will be your glory. 
Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall it be heard in it the sound of weeping and the crying of distress. He says, There will come a day when I will arise and shine like the sun on my people. You will have my glory in your midst, and you will not need the sun, nor will you need the moon, but you will have me presently with you. And Isaiah then transfers that, and he says, listen, this is nothing less than a new heavens and a new earth. This is brand new creation going on. What God has created before will be undone. The sin and effects of the fall will be undone. The evil that persists in the world will be undone. There will be no more distress. There will be no more tears. There will be no more evil in the world. All there will be is joy in Jerusalem, for God will be with his people. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because you've read to the end of the Bible and you actually got to the book of Revelation. That leans heavily, heavily on this when it's depicting the picture of the new Jerusalem. This is what scripture points toward. This is what all of the Old Testament is pointing toward, the fact that Christ has come to undo all of the evil in the world. So it's important that John points out that in verse 39, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The river of living water is nothing less than the the provision of the Spirit for you, that God himself would dwell in you, fulfilling all of your desires because God is with you. Ultimately, what sin has done in creating desire is separated us from God. The ultimate remedy for the fact that we don't have comfort, the ultimate remedy for the chaos of the world, the ultimate remedy for death and illness, the ultimate remedy for every ill that we have in this world is the fact that we don't have God. And so what God promises is the provision of the Spirit, which will give us life. But why then wait? Why wait? There are people here who believe in Jesus. No doubt, Peter would like to have the Spirit and these rivers of flowing water in him now. Why wait until Jesus is glorified? Well, a lot of that depends on what we mean when we talk about Jesus being glorified. It means in John kind of a a conglomeration of everything. It certainly points at the fact that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be murdered and crucified, that he was going to be buried, that he was going to be risen from the grave in a glorious resurrection and ascend to God on high. That entire sort of conglomeration of events was Jesus' glorification. He is glorified just as much by his death on the cross as he is his resurrection and ascension in glory back to the Father. But why had the Spirit wait until all that is done? The Spirit waits until all that is done is because the resurrection of Jesus is nothing less than the new creation that has already been foretold in the prophet Isaiah and in other prophets. It is the beginning of the newness that God is going to bring to the world. This is why Jesus is called the first fruits of the creation. He is the first fruit of this new creation that is coming. And so we have to wait for the provision of the Spirit until Jesus has actually done everything that he has come to do. The old Adam rejected the covenant that God had given him. The old Adam rejected the commands that God had put over him. And by doing that, in disobedience, he led people into death. The new Adam, the second Adam, the good and better Adam, Jesus will be obedient to his 
Father, even to the point of death and death on a cross. And in that obedience, God accepting his obedience resurrects him from the grave. And because he accepts his obedience and resurrects him from the grave, he is now not in the form of the old Adam, but he is a whole new Adam. He is the bringer of a new creation, a type of new man. And in doing so, the spirit then comes to do exactly what it did when creation was first made. In Genesis 1, 1 and 2, the earth was without form and void and the darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The spirit was there in the very beginning, bringing order to chaos. In Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man from the dust, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word breath, same word as spirit. God gives his spirit to man to make them come alive. And now, in the new creation, where God has provided through Jesus Christ the resurrection, the spirit then breathes life into men, giving them all that they need and God with them wherever they go. Jesus is the new Ash, the new Adam. He ushers in the new creation. The spirit provides nothing more than the power of it. New creation then is nothing less than a work of the Trinity. It is conceived of by the Father, it is achieved by the Son, and it is empowered by the Spirit. Jesus must finish this work. He must be glorified so that you, friend, might experience rivers of living water, all of your desires quenched because God is now with you, in you, wherever you go. And this is not the only thing that we have. In our text today, we've got three very neat paragraphs There is this middle issue with the crowds and there are these last issues with the officers. Before we get on to what's going on in these two paragraphs, there's something to be mentioned about the fact that John kind of continues to mention something, but he doesn't really need to. Continually, he's talking about the fact that these people want to arrest him. Back in 518, he talked about it. He said they they wanted to kill him all the more because Jesus not only had healed on the Sabbath, but said, hey, my father and I are both working on the Sabbath. And they said, hey, you're making yourself equal with God. And so they wanted to kill him there. But even, and especially in chapter 7, this sort of desire to kill him has been ramping up. In 7.1, it was said that Jesus delayed in going to Judea because they wanted to kill him there. In 11 through 12, the crowd's confusion about him is sort of played out. They, They realize that there are divergent opinions on who Jesus is, but no one's going to say anything because they were afraid of the leadership. In 725, it is clear that some have knowledge of a plan to kill Jesus. In 732, officers are sent to arrest Jesus. And now, again, this idea of arresting him comes up. The officers come back empty-handed. Even in the crowd, people at the end of that, the the, um, paragraph on the crowd in verse 44, some want to arrest him. Why make this issue so much? You could have said it once and let it go, but he keeps bringing it up and bringing it up and bringing it up. It is important to realize that these people weren't just bumbling fools. They just didn't miss their chances. It wasn't simply because they they didn't want it bad enough that they weren't able to arrest Jesus. What God is laying out is their continual and non-ending desire to arrest him, to have him crucified, and to kill him. They wanted nothing more than that, but they couldn't do it, and the question becomes why. And the answer is simple. They tried to seize him, and they couldn't. They wanted to arrest him, and they couldn't. They wanted to kill him, but they didn't, all because it wasn't Jesus' time. 
The issue is God's providence over the whole thing. John continues to mention it to show what their desire is, and he continues to thwart it to show what God's ultimate plan was. God was holy and sovereignly in control of all things. And more than that, even Jesus himself here is sovereignly in control over all things. No one, he says, takes my life for me, but I lay it down willingly. So all that the authorities want to have happen, all that they're cranning for and craving All of that is always under the control of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's speak for just a second about these authorities and the result of their rebellion. What are the results of a rebellion? If we have the benefits of belief, what happens to people who rebel? You'll notice a couple of things about this. First, they demand absolute authority. The officers come back empty-handed and they say, Where is he? We asked you to arrest him. And they came back and they said, what? Well, no one's ever spoke like that. There's a sense of them just being kind of in awe. They said, I don't know what we were supposed to do. He was saying things that we've never heard before. And whether it freaked them out or whether they were inspired by it, whatever the case was, whatever Jesus was saying here was enough to make them withhold. But the authorities will have none of that. Their authority is all that mattered The officer's ideas of what should or shouldn't happen don't matter at all. What matters is we told you to do it. You hear this in the rebuke to their officers. None of us has believed. None of us believe in that. You have no right to do what you want to do. You have no right to form your own opinions. Who told you to think? You were just to do what we wanted you to do. The authority of those who deny Christ is not always evident in each separate individual If you talk to individuals, many of them will say, listen, I don't mind if you love Christ. Good for you, you love Christ. I don't think that he's all that great, but you do what you want to do. That's almost never true on a collective scale. Almost never true on a collective scale. When you have an entire country, you have a vast majority of people standing against Christ, it almost always ends in persecution and oppression of the people of God. This is true in communist China, It's true in Islamic Iran. It is true in dictatorial North Korea. It is true in genocidal Sudan. It is true in liberal Europe. And it is even now burgeoning in the United States. When people stand against Christ, they will stand against his people. There is no live and let live. They have the authority. They get what they want. Secondly, they produce a sense of unity and conformity. The officers here come back and they kind of want to have this discussion maybe or they've at least got different ideas and the Jewish leaders say, no, we're having none of that. You either fall in line with us or you are accursed. Listen to how they talk about the crowds who have believed in them. The crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You're damned if you stand against us. If you believe differently than we believe, you are cut off. The crowd that does not know the law is accursed. This is indeed their rallying cry. Why should the officers listen to them? Because they know the law. Because we are unified in our front. We know, all of us know, none of us has believed, and they don't know the law, so listen to us. There's a sense of grand unity. Many point out at these particular verses and say, listen, the chief priests and the Sadducees who were the leaders who had all of the actual political power here and the Pharisees didn't get along. They didn't get along. 
They, they were opposed on a number of different issues. So there's no way, there's no way the Pharisees and these people would have, have even had a chance at getting along enough to actually be a, a full front force in, in the face of Jesus Christ. They just wouldn't have come together. They wouldn't have been friends. It is amazing. It is absolutely amazing what a common foe will do to the unity of people. As long as they had Jesus as their enemy, they would have been unified to the end of the earth. But it is always going to be a fake, fake unity. It is always only skin deep. But they do produce a sense of unity. And finally, they insist that they are the ones who are moral. They're not accursed like this crowd. They know the law. They have the moral high ground. Just like everyone else who declares that Jesus is unnecessary, they think that they can do that, except for the very rare exception, because they are themselves moral enough. You see this all the time in America today. The depiction of what Christians believe as immoral and what the secular world believes is as moral. Everyone wants to claim the high moral ground. But each of these claims, specifically in our passage today, is brilliantly undercut by John with one simple idea. Nicodemus stood up and asked them about the law. And each of these ideas is trashed by that one idea. They claimed authority. Nicodemus simply asked them, but what about the law? You can't do what you're doing. There's a law that you agreed to adhere to. You have no authority outside of what God has commanded you to do. No one in the world has any authority to do anything outside of what God has commanded them to do. Any action that is not in accordance with God's word is an, ac an action in rebellion against the rule and the reign of God. You have no authority to do that. Nicodemus helpfully points this out. They also claim unity, but it is one of their own ranks, Nicodemus, who John helpfully points out has gone to Jesus before, who stands up to them in disunity to point out their hypocrisy. And what's more, they claim unity. But this unity is clearly only skin deep. Not only do the officers not see in line with those, not only do the crowds not see in line with them, but one of their own. He says, has any of us gone off and believed? But certainly Nicodemus, who is one of them, as John rightfully and helpfully points out, doesn't believe exactly what they believe. But their unity is overwhelmed, not only because Nicodemus undercuts them, but because they reaffirm their unity even while it's being undercut. Well, you just go see. Just go and look. You'll notice, by the way, that the crowds are trying to work through Scripture and that Jesus is quoting Scripture, but the Pharisees do no such thing. They don't say, go and look at the Scripture and see that these things must be. They just say, eh, go and search. No doubt that's purposeful by John. All of these claims fall flat. Their claim to morality is also undercut by Nicodemus's question. They say that they know the law, that they've got the high moral ground, but Nicodemus is pointing out that what you are doing is actually against the law. You have no high moral ground. In the end, these in authority have no special claims. Their claims fall short, they are worthless, they're undone by one simple sentence, by one simple man. One simple question undercuts all of their claims. Ultimately, what they want is to cling to the little bit of this earth that they can grab. They want to cling on to their power. They want to cling on to their authority. They want to cling on to their goods. They want to cling on to their interpretation of Scripture. Whatever they can get, they are going to cling on to. Scraps. 
that will turn bitter in their mouths and turn their stomachs inside out. Scraps which will gnaw at their insides. Scraps of this earth that will never fulfill them and that will eventually, in the end, destroy them. That's what they're hanging on to. All the while, Jesus, just verses above, is holding out for them, not the scraps of the world that will turn to dust in their mouths, but water that will flow in them for everlasting life. Friends, these are the two paths for you. There are no others. You will either stand with Jesus or you will stand against him. You either have rivers of living water flowing in you or you are doing everything you can to hold on to every blade of grass of this earth knowing full well it is going to disintegrate one day. We know that these are the only two paths because of the third point, the mistakes of the middle. John points out a number of things about these people in the middle, literally the middle paragraph, the people who seem to be kind of undecided. They're, 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 they're not sure of what's going on. The, the, the actual confessions here of Jesus being the prophet, okay, he's the prophet. And they, they've heard his word and they think, well, he's the prophet that Moses had predicted from long ago in Deuteronomy 18, so we should listen to him. Or he is the Christ, which sounds like a really, really good confession, who knows how far that confession is going to go when Jesus is betrayed and crucified if they're still going to think he's the Christ when even his own people have turned against him. Others might have more doubts. You'll notice that those doubts are actually rooted in Scripture. Those doubts are not actually sought out. They just sit there as doubts. It would have taken one simple question to ask Jesus what he thought about the son of David being born in Bethlehem. I think that there's a story about that somewhere. Maybe Jesus would have known his own story but they don't even ask him. So what you have is a mixed bag of people, some who think he's a good man, some who think he might even be the Messiah, some who think that he probably deserves to be arrested. The point of this, though, is that these people kind of disappear in John's gospel. They don't actually stick around for very long. In verse 40, the ESV says, some of the people said, That word that is translated people here is used about 20 times in John's gospel. Most of those occurrences happen here in chapter 7. About eight of them occur here. Many of the rest occur in chapter 12, about six of them. In chapter 12, Jesus is entered. Uh, begins to talk about the, the coming of the end. The Gentiles have come and asked to see him, and he takes this as a sign of the end. But in chapter 12, And in chapter 7, when Jesus interacts with the crowds, he's always kind of cordial. Sometimes he has hard things to say to them, but not the same way he talks to the authorities. He's trying to lead them in understanding. He's trying to help and guide them. He seems to understand that they they are not those who stand strongly against him, but they are those to be won over. But yet chapter 12 is the last time we hear of them. When Jesus starts to go to the cross, the people are never heard from again. John 13 through 17 As Jesus realizes that he's going to the cross, the the week of the Passover, Jesus begins to talk to his, his disciples and has a conversation with them, knowing that he is leaving. He's giving them his last instructions. And chapter 18 is when the whole false pseudo trial begins. And 19 is when he is crucified. And 20 is when he is resurrected. And never again is the crowd mentioned. Because ultimately, this crowd disappears. They're here now, but ultimately they're gone. Ultimately, there is no middle ground. There is no waiting for more information. There is no trying to figure out where you stand with Jesus. Friend, you are either with him or you are against him. 
There is no more searching the scriptures to try and find out. There is no more waiting and delaying and trying to see if maybe you can get a little bit more factual information about who this Jesus was. There is none of that. This middle group goes. And their mistake, as we talked about last week, is thinking that you can delay just a little bit longer to wait just a little bit more to find out just a little bit more. The Bible continues to press us. Everywhere you turn in the Bible, it presses you believe. Trust today. Confess today. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the end of this day. We do not serve a Christ who is unable to grant us the wishes and the longings of our heart. He might not grant them the way we want him to. Those wishes and desires might not come to fruition in us the way we seek for them to, but nevertheless, he is good to give us what we want His ways and his means are better than ours. His gifts are better than our requests and his yoke is certainly easier than the world's. So friend, don't continue to kick against the goads. Don't continue to fight Jesus on this. Remain in your sin no longer. Confess that Jesus is the Christ and come to him for forgiveness, for relief of your sins, for rivers of living water that will satiate you in all of your desires. This warning is not telling you to stop smoking, knowing that you're going to die anyway. This warning is telling you to stop sinning and to trust in Jesus Christ because there is life to be had, a fullness of life that you will otherwise never know. Don't continue to stand in the middle thinking that more information is available, thinking that more facts will be brought to you. For behold, what is promised to you is not a matter of fact. It is not simply a matter of information. It is not simply a scheme to think through. It is nothing less than what we will sing in just a moment, a wondrous mystery. It is a mystery to ponder. It is a mystery to wonder at. It is a mystery to live in. But it needs no more facts. What you need is the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus Christ has come to die for sinners. He has done that. There is a freedom for you in him. If you trust him, your sins are wiped away. If you trust him, God will never hold that against you again. If you trust in him, he gives you new life and all of the desires of your world will be fulfilled in him. Trust him. For as we will sing, let us behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed believe, but we ask that you might help our unbelief. Let us not waver or doubt your goodness in Jesus Christ poured out so lavishly in the Spirit for us. Let us know, feel, and experience the river of water that is the Spirit in us. Let us be firmly planted in that stream that we may know life even here in the desert. We pray that you would do this for our good and for your glory. Amen.